Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Revelation chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And if you remember from the first night that I met, that we met, I said Revelation is a combination of earthly scenes and heavenly scenes that kind of switch back and forth. Okay, so the, the first part of the book, chapter 1, John is on the island of Patmos. He gets the vision of the exalted Christ. Christ comes to him. John freaks out as though he's a dead man. And Jesus says, you know, fear not, I'm with you. Write these things to the seven churches. You have the seven churches. And then after the seven churches, we, we move in chapter 4 to a heavenly scene. Uh, John is in the throne room of heaven, and God the Father is there in all of His brilliance and glory and, and flashing. And uh, chapter 5 was Jesus, the Lamb, at the center of the throne room, who's the one worthy to go take the scroll. And then there's this universal crescendo of worship where all creation, starting with the four living creatures to the 24 elders to the angelic myriads upon myriads of angels to all creation is, is falling down and worshiping Jesus. So for two chapters, we have seen what's going on or what will go on in heaven. Now we get to chapter 6, which is the seven seals. Okay? So in chapter 6, these seals described, again, are symbolic of times of trouble and persecution that have been happening since Jesus went back to heaven. So here's the question I often ask. When did the end times begin? When Jesus went back up to heaven. Okay, so... The New Testament writers, they talked about the end times being their time. Now, my question is, are we closer today than they were back then? Yes. Yeah. Are we living in the end times? Yes. yes. We don't have to wait for some end times. We're, we're living in the end times because Christ is no longer on earth. He's gone back up to heaven. Now, here's the thing about it. Um, I believe that what we're going to see in chapter 6 are symbolic of things that have been happening throughout time for the past 2,000 years all over the world. But with that being said, I also believe there's an intensification of these things right before Christ comes back. Okay, So we must not only see these as events happening in the future, but as commonplace occurrences that are a result of living in a fallen world that stands opposed to Jesus. In other words what we're going to see are things that in the world right now are happening. They may not be happening in America, but they're happening, and they may not be happening on a grand scale across the world the way they will one day. But these are, these are things that happen in the world as a result of Satan being alive, living in a fallen world, and Christ has not come back yet. Now, go back up to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 for a moment, and let's just remind you of the context. And a reason I tell you this is because I want you just to remember what John said about his own day. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the impatient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Did John perceive himself to be living during a time of tribulation? Yes. When John is writing to the seven churches, were they in a time of tribulation? Yes. Until Jesus comes back, well, well there'll be times, periodic times of tribulation in the world that we go through. Now, in some places in the world, it's more intense than others. Now, does this mean that there's not going to be a future day of a very intense tribulation? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that don't wait for a great tribulation to happen someday, realize that John says he's living in a time of tribulation now. Okay. Now, in those seven churches, if you remember, the seven churches, at the end of every one of the seven churches, Jesus said, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, 
And again, that's the Greek word Nike or Nikeo, which means to overcome. Um, the Christians in those seven churches were to endure to the end no matter what they faced. And it's the same for us today. We must persevere to the end no matter what our culture throws at us. So here's the question. Is it going to be harder to be a Christian or is it going to be easier to be a Christian moving forward the way that things are going right now? Probably harder. Is there going to be a temptation for Christians to say, ah, this is not what I signed up for, I'm going to bail. Now, they may not be true Christians. So one of the things about being a Christian in a time of tribulation is the call to endure. Now, this is not in your notes. Let's just stop and talk about this. Do we, this is called, let me just write this down. This is called perseverance of the saints. And the flip side of perseverance of the saints, if you think of two sides of one coin, it's the idea of eternal security. They're, they're similar, but they're a little bit different. Eternal security is the doctrinal truth that a true believer in Jesus Christ will never lose his or her salvation. They will never fully nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but will persevere to the end. Okay. So the question would be asked, can a true Christian lose his or her salvation? No, we believe no. Okay. On the flip side of that, though, perseverance of the saints says all true Christians will persevere to the end, will endure to the end, will prove out to the end that they were truly Christians. Now, the question then becomes, does a Christian do that in his or her own power, or does God, the Holy Spirit, live in us, giving us the grace to persevere? We're given grace to persevere. So some people misunderstand perseverance of the saints. They'd be like, well, that just means that if you try really hard and you, and you try to keep yourself saved, hopefully you, you've done enough at the end of, the, of your life to keep yourself saved. That's not perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is God has saved you. You are eternally secure in His grip. God's going to make sure you persevere to the end. He's going to work in you that which is pleasing to Him. Okay? So part of the book of Revelation is how do we persevere to the end. Do we know when the end is? Do you know when your day of death is? Do you know when Jesus is coming back? Okay. Those are things you can't control. What's the one thing you know is true? I'm living in this time, in this space right now. And one thing as your pastor I don't want to do is I don't want to lull you into a false sense of your security saying, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. There's not going to be any pressure. There's not going to be any time of tribulation. Uh, everything's just, you know, rainbows and unicorns and, you know, bubble gum and you know, I don't know what you call it. Everything's going to be great. Would I be honest if I told you that? So my job is to prepare you to persevere to the end. Because days of tribulation may or may not come. But I don't want you to think they're not going to come. If they come, you'll be prepared for them. If they don't come, no harm, no foul. <laughs> okay? So, as we look at these horsemen... I think the four horsemen are, again, this is, a, this is a future reality and a present reality. I think the four horsemen are things that are going to happen in the future, but I also think they're symbolic of what our culture throws at us right now. Okay, so it's a both and. Okay? So let's just remember that chapter 5 ended with Jesus taking the scroll. Remember? He was the one worthy to go take the scroll. What was the scroll? It was written on front and back. It was sealed. It was God's plan of judgment that He was going to execute on the earth. So the, the drama is Jesus takes the scroll. All creation bows down and worships Jesus. Chapter 6 is, okay, Jesus is the one who's going to execute the judgment that's in the scroll. So these judgments come from Jesus Himself, who's the only one worthy to open the seals and execute God's judgment on the earth. These texts do not tell us that these are accidents of nature or that these are like from Satan. Um, they come from Jesus. So let, let's just read uh, chapter 6. Let's, let's look at verses 1 
through, let's just start with one through six. Now I watched when the Lamb, Jesus, opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and look, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by a wild beast on the earth. Okay. The four horsemen of the apocalypse is what this has traditionally been called. So the question you've got to ask is, why does... Jesus open these seals and release judgment on the earth. Who are these seals for? Those that are not in Christ, obviously. Yes. Okay. These are to punish non-believers, but at the same time, they're a source of refining and purifying for the church. Here's where differences of opinion on the book of Revelation, this is, this is where we're going to get into some differences of opinion, secondary issues. Nowhere in this text does it say that Christians will be exempt from what happens as a result of these occurrences. Now, it just says these things are happening. Are Christians going to be out of the picture? Are they going to be in there during the time? We can't answer that question from this text, the text itself. Does anywhere in this text teach that Christians are removed or that Christians are exempt? Do you see anything there? So we have to argue from silence that, yes, these are punishment for non-believers, but at the same time, God may ordain that we go through times of judgment, not judgment upon us, but we may... Be. So let me just ask you a question. If God were to bring judgment on America tomorrow, would Christians living in America be exempt from that? Now, would we be judged? No. Would we experience the judgment of God in the culture that we're living in? So the judgment's not for us. The judgment's for a wicked culture but we're living in that wicked culture and we'd feel the effects of that. Is that what, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that just because God brings judgment on non-believers doesn't necessarily mean that Christians aren't there. Now, the only time in the Bible that I remember judgments coming and God's people being spared is Egypt when Israel was in the land of Goshen and the plagues didn't affect them. They were protected. Um, but there have been times when God's people, especially in the Old Testament, were, were um, invaded by foreign armies, and God may have even been punishing those foreign armies, but Israel felt the effects of that. Yeah, Paul, you were going to... Uh, when you say judgment, is that the same as a tribulation or different? You have, when I say judgment, there is a final judgment that will be the great white throne judgment that's the final judgment. Can, and maybe judgment's not a good word, does or can God... Okay, do you guys want to take it slow tonight and go somewhere else, or do you want to stick with this? Because that's a good question. Okay. Let me just write a word up here. Because I think... I, actually, what I'm about to tell you may be more pressing to what's going on in our culture right now. And it'll come back to Revelation. Is that okay if we take a sidetrack? Okay. 
So this is not in your notes at all, so you may have to write. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. And I want to talk to you about a word. Maybe, see Paul, when we, when we talk about judgment or wrath, we may need to qualify those statements because God can bring periods of judgment right now, but not necessarily the final judgment where everybody's going to be consigned to their final heaven and hell. Does that make sense? So like when God flooded the earth, that was a judgment, was it not? When God did Sodom and Gomorrah, that was a judgment, was it not? When God killed Ananias and Sapphira on the spot, was that not a judgment? Now, was that worldwide and affected everybody? Well, the flood was. But were these... So there are some times where God executes His judgment in different ways on the earth and has done it through history without it being the final judgment. Does that, does that make sense? Does that, does that answer your question, Paul? Or is it more confusing? No, not really. I'm just trying to okay. sort those two words out. Yeah. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, and, and let, me, let, me, let me give you a distinction here. So in Romans, chap- Romans chapter 1 explains why, why when you look, watch the news and you watch culture, you're like, why in the world is, are people insane? Two questions you probably ask. Why are people so immoral and why are people so insane? Romans chapter 1 answers that question, okay? So here's, here's why people are insane and here's why people are immoral. And I mean that in the, I guess, the kindest way you can call it. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, stop right there. The wrath of God, you guys tell me, is that present tense or future tense in your Bible? The wrath of God is presently being revealed. Now, there are two different types of ways God can execute His wrath. There's an active wrath, and I guess there's more of a passive wrath. An active wrath of God would be those times in history where God actively intervened to bring about pretty visible judgment. So what would be some examples of God's active wrath? Okay, we can think of the flood. That's pretty active, isn't it? Okay. Sodom and Gomorrah. Can I just put S and G there? Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, like a bunch of Old Testament examples of, you know, Sennacherib. I don't even know how to spell Sennacherib. Um, the Assyrian armies. Times where God, like, when I say active, I think these are like direct acts of God's justice and judgment coming upon either the whole world or a people. Now, there's a passive wrath of God where God does not actively mete out His justice, but He does it in a passive way. And and this verse explains how that happens. So, the wrath of God, He says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, which means it's a present reality right now. So there's a future day of wrath, but there's a present day of wrath. What do men do in their unrighteousness and their ungodliness? What's the key word that verse 18 says? What does it mean to, they suppress the truth? What does to suppress the truth mean? They're pushing it away, they're hiding it. So let me ask you, is there any such thing as a true atheist? Not if they're honest with themselves. This text says, notice what it says. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they're without excuse. All people everywhere should look up at the moon, look up at the stars, look up at the sky and say, there's a God out there. Now, they won't know who it's, his name's Jesus. They don't know about the Trinity. But there, God has revealed enough in nature for people to look up and say, there's a God out there. And what should those people, all people do, when they look up and see God reveal himself in the world? What should they do? They should worship and praise that God and give thanks to that God. Instead of worshiping and praising and acknowledging a creator, what do they do, does Paul say in verse 18? They suppress the truth. God's reality is right in front of them. You look at a sunset, 
You look at the, the waves crashing on a beach, you, you ski to the top of a mountain, you, you go to a rainforest, think of the most, you go to the Grand Canyon, you look at creation, you look through a telescope, and you're like, I am so significant, insignificantly small, there's got to be a creator out there. So instead of saying, there's a creator out there, you suppress that and say, I refuse to acknowledge there's even a God. I'm going to suppress that truth. I'm going to push it away. Because God's made it clearly known. Now here's what they do. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. What are you supposed to do when you look up at the stars and sky and see creation? You're supposed to worship and thank God. But instead, what do you do? You suppress that truth. And notice what happens. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, so I'm going to erase this for just a moment. They became what in their thinking? Does anybody else have a different translation besides futile? Worthless. If you suppress the truth about God and you do not acknowledge God, you begin to have worthless or futile thinking. And what happens to your heart? You get a darkened heart. So your thinking is not godly, not Christian, and your heart is darkened. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for, a mortal God for the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so instead of, so here's the exchange. Instead of worshiping God, they made an exchange. They exchanged the glory of God for idolatry. So here's what happens. All people everywhere know there's a God. Instead of worshiping that God, they suppress the truth about that God. They push it away, and up in its place comes an idol, whether that's a creature that you worship or whether it's yourself. And, and as a result of suppressing the truth, you end up with a futile way of thinking and a darkened heart. Now look at what happens here. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up twice to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Three times in that passage of Scripture, what does it say? God gave them up. God gave them over. So the passive wrath of God is this. If you want to engage in all type of immorality and insanity and craziness, I'm not going to rain fire down on you like Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just going to give you what you want. Follow your own heart and see where that leads you, and you will receive the due penalty of your error. So right now in America, this is just my personal opinion, if, if we're on the brink of an entire culture being given over to a depraved mind and darkened hearts and debased thinking, and when that happens, God says, if that's the way you want to go, I'm hands off. And that's just as much the wrath of God as him pouring down judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah on America. So when I say we may be under judgment, I don't mean God's going to bring fire down. It could just be the way God exercises his judgment on America is saying, if you guys want to be insane and you guys want to be godless and you guys want to be immoral and, and you guys want to be illogical and you guys want to do all these things, America, then I'll let you have it. And then when, you, when God gives a culture over, what ends up happening? The worst thing you can think of. That's why when you look, when you talk to people today that aren't believers and may not have a Christian worldview, and you think to yourself when you come away, these people, they're, they're insane. And I mean that not in a negative way, like they're mentally insane. I'm saying 
they don't understand basic logic. They've lost all morality. They've lost all semblance of right and wrong. They have no clue as to what, what, what's going on. And so when a culture moves that way, in hindsight you can say that may, not always, but it may be evidence of the wrath. Hello. That may be a telephone call. It may be the wrath of God because it says the wrath of God is being revealed. And how is that? Is there anything in that passage of Scripture about fire raining down or judgment? It's about being given over. Okay. Nancy, you had a question. Yes. This is a description of all people. It's a description of all lost people. And the only way they're going to be turned is through what? The power of the gospel. If they have darkened, if they're futile in their thinking and their hearts are darkened, the only way that's going to happen is God's going to have to do a work to take the blinders off and soften their heart and open their heart. And He uses us as gospel witness to share the truth. And then God does that work of, of doing that, that unveiling. Does that make sense, Nancy? Well, <laughs> nowhere in this text does it say it's permanent, but nowhere in this text does it say it's not permanent. <laughs> okay. So I don't want to presume upon God because I'm, if, if, I, if I say it's permanent, then I'm saying, well, there's no hope for anybody. If I say it's not permanent, then I'm putting God in a box saying He may actually get to a point where He says it is permanent. So I'm not going to speak for God where the text doesn't speak. I would say this, lost people are lost and need to be saved. The only way they're going to be saved is through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. How does God do that? He uses our witness to do that. The other details, I'm not, I'm not supposed to know. If God chooses to give a culture over and God sets a point beyond which it's too late, He's not going to reveal that to me. My responsibility and what I know is I need to share the gospel with everybody, pray for everybody, make sure that everybody hears the gospel so that they can get saved and let God work out the details. But we have a passage here that says He gives them over. Now, is that a permanent giving over? Or is that a temporary giving over? Um, we don't know. Yes, Brent. Do you think it's taken out of context when you say, Scripture, how many times should you forgive your brother? And it's you know, 70 times 7, but the real word is yeah. Indefinitely. And I think that's sort of what God can do. Yeah. Does. Yeah, I would say, like, if you're, let's make this real. If this is, if, if, if there's somebody you know in your life that looks like they've been given over, let's make it real personal. You don't know. All you know is they need Jesus, and you pray for them, and you plead with them and you, you, you talk to them, and you love them, and you encourage them, and you share the gospel with them, and you, you're, you're consistent with that with the hopes that God will grant them repentance. I, don't, I, don't wanna, I, would, either, I would rather err on the side that God can bring them back, and, and we should be praying for them, then I'm just going to write them off as God's giving them over, and there's no hope for them. Because I don't know either one of those. The one that perseveres to the end, yeah, the one that does persevere to the end proves out that they were saved. But again, yes, 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 to disciple others. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what this has to do with Revelation. <laughs> I, I do know the, the question is, oh, go ahead, Cindy. Yeah. So, yes, he's turning them over, and they can be saved still if they repent of their sins, if they realize, because a lot of times I think God uses, sort of like a drug addict or or an alcoholic, you have to hit bottom. Yeah. And then you go, oh, I don't like this. I don't want to be turned over. Yeah. Let let me give you guys a verse, because a lot of Christians worry about things they're not supposed to worry about. Mm -hmm and then they don't worry about the things they're supposed to worry about. Does that make sense? Okay, so let me give you Deuteronomy 29, 29. Very helpful passage of Scripture. teaches two truths in Deuteronomy 29, 29. There's two things that are taught side by side that help you. Okay? And some of you have more inquisitive minds. 
And um, a famous theologian said, don't go beyond what's written into speculation. You start to get into an, a, a, a dangerous web of racking your mind to figure out things that you're not meant to figure out. Okay. So Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Okay, truth number one in that passage of Scripture, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Are there some things that God in His sovereignty has chosen not to reveal to us? And He's not under obligation to reveal to us. There are some things God says, I'm not going to give you the answer to that and you don't need to know. So is that our burden or our responsibility to know the secret things of God? So a lot of times Christians are trying to figure out the secret things of God, and God's like, you can, figure, you can try to figure that out all day long, but you're not going to figure it out. I've held that to myself. But in that same verse, what does he say? The things that are revealed belong to us so that we can obey them. What are the things that God has revealed to us? Well, everything you read in the Bible. So the things that God has revealed to us, we are responsible for, obeying responding to the things that God has not chosen to reveal to us. We're not responsible for those. God's not going to, on the day of judgment, hold us accountable for his secret sovereign will that we didn't know about. He's going to hold us responsible for the things that he's revealed to us that we obeyed. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think the other thing is in 6 Corinthians 5, 5, where it says, you're to deliver this man with Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but then, so that his spirit may be saved. Yeah. Yeah, and, both. Yeah, yeah. So back to Revelation. <laughs> when we talk about these four horsemen, the interpretation that may be a safe interpretation is this was written to the original audience and it had to have meant something to them at that culture, at that time. So what did it mean to the seven churches it was being written to that were in the midst of tribulation, John in the midst of tribulation? What does it mean to us there's, there's, a, there's a now and a not yet. I think these things are happening now, but I think they're going to happen on a greater scale in the future. And I think Revelation teaches a lot of that. So let's, let's look at the, the seals, the six seals. Seal, seal number one, the white horse. Now, automatically, you're thinking, well, obviously that's got to be Jesus. There have been four predominant views in church history, so nobody can agree. Let me give you the four views of who the rider on the white horse has been. View number one is it's the literal Antichrist, a somewhat satanic parody of Jesus coming on a white horse to kind of mimic Jesus, but not Jesus, a, a parody. So it's the literal Antichrist riding on a white horse because he's conquering. Okay. The second interpretation is historical. It's the Parthians. They were the persistent enemies of Rome and Iran and Iraq. They oftentimes rode on white horses. This was a, a real conquest in history. So John is talking about only what was historical to the people of his time in Rome. Some would say, well, it's Christ himself. Obviously, he's the rider on the white horse. Others would say, no, it's symbolic of the gospel going out in power and history. I don't have time to go into the details of the strengths and weaknesses of each position, but, but let me just tell you what I think it is, my best guess. I do not believe it's Christ at this point in Revelation because it doesn't make sense for him to open the seal and then to become the rider on the white horse. Does that make sense? Yes, we do have in chapter 19, Jesus on a white horse. But in the context of chapter 6, these events are ordained by God to bring about justice, and Jesus is the one executing the justice. Um, I do not believe it's a literal antichrist because we have nothing in the text to say that we should take it that way. Does the word antichrist show in there? Does the word beast? Um, it just says a rider on a white horse. I believe, this is what I believe it is, and I could be wrong. I believe it's a general symbol of conquest and warfare. Conquest and warfare. Um, under God's sovereign purposes, 
there will be wars and rumors of wars, and these are happening all the time. And yet, I do believe that right before Christ comes back, there will be an intensification of worldwide warfare. So the rider on the white horse, I think, is just a symbolic image of conquering and war and what's going on in our world right now where nations are coming against nations to um, basically conquer and conquest. Now, are there nations conquering each other right now? All the time. Right before Jesus comes back, is there going to be an intensification of nations against nations? Yeah, Jesus said in Matthew 24, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Okay. What's the symbol of the red horse, the second one? Most scholars would say that the red horse because he went out to slay one another, was given a great sword to take peace from the earth. Most scholars would say the red horse is the religious persecution of Christians, the slaughter of martyrs. Are there being Christians being martyred today in our world? Yes. Is there going to be an intensification of that right before Jesus comes back? So I, I think it's a both end. You see these things happening now, but there's going to be an intensification of it right before Jesus comes back. Okay. Seal 3, the black horse. Now we get a little bit more detail because it talks about here um, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and, we do, and do not harm the oil and wine. It's talking about um, wheat and barley, things that relate to um, food. So... Many scholars believe that the black horse is oppression of the poor by the rich, especially the Christian poor who were the original recipients of the letter, economic hardship due to injustice, especially famine. Is there economic injustice and famine in our world today? Will it be intensified before Christ comes back? Okay. Seal 4. What's seal 4? The pale horse, which most scholars would say represents disease, and death. Now, is there disease and death going on in the world right now? Will there be more diseases and death as we get closer to Jesus? Probably. So the first four seals are these horsemen. Now just let's ask the question, why are they riding on horses? And why are they different colors? Again, it's symbolic language. What does a horse represent? Power. A horse is going out in power to accomplish something. So it's, it's Jesus is sending. Who's sending these four horsemen out? Jesus. To bring judgment upon the earth. And then how many people were killed? One thing you need to pay attention to, guys, um, when we start getting into Revelation a little bit deeper. Look there, I think it's in verse, um, where is it? Verse 8, how many people were killed on the earth? A fourth. Later on, it's going to become a third. And later on, it's going to become a half. And by the end, it's going to be the whole. So, just pay attention to your fractions as we start this, a fourth of the earth. Okay, now we get to this, the fifth seal, which is verses 9 through 11, which is you're not seeing riders on horses, but you're seeing something very interesting. You're seeing the souls of the martyrs. So the horsemen are wrecking havoc on the earth, where now John sees souls. So let's look at verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
So what are they, what's the big question they're asking? How? Now, 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 long. Now, you go back to the Psalms and even last week's sermon with the Israelites. What was the question they were, oftentimes you hear in the, in the Psalms? How long am I going to have to endure this? How long am I going to have to wait? How long till you avenge our blood, God? So they're expressing, these souls under the altar, they're expressing a lament, crying out to God, and how long this persecution and killing and martyrdom is going to happen on earth? When will they finally be vindicated and the opposition to Christianity ever end? Legitimate question, aren't you? But the answer is unexpected. What do you think Jesus would say? It's going to happen right away. What's he say? They were each given, a, verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Wait just a little longer. They are told to wait until the full number of martyrs has been completed. In other words, God will bring history to a close when the last martyrs martyred. That doesn't help us in setting times and dates and pulling out charts and graphs because martyrdom is happening all over the world right now. One thing we do know, I don't know if you know this statistically, there have been more martyrs in the last 100 years worldwide than in the past 1900 years. Now, you may say, what's the reason for that? What's the most dominant world religion right now? Islam. Okay, so for 1900 years, Christianity has been the main religion in the world. Now you've got Islam taking over places where Christians are getting killed. So in the past 100 years, statistically, more people have been killed for their faith combined than the first 1900 years put together. So we're seeing more martyrs. You can go to Voice of the Martyrs. It's a website. We get the magazine. We put it out there on the Welcome Center table for you to take. Um, listen to what Jesus says in, in Matthew 24, 13 through 14. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, let's just talk about that verse. Does that mean that we can actually usher in when Jesus comes back by our evangelism? What does that text say? The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, I can tell you right now, are there people, groups that have never heard the gospel? We don't know why God has delayed in coming back or sending Jesus to come back. But we do know that there are places in this world where the gospel of the kingdom has not been proclaimed. So it could be that in God's timetable, His sovereign timetable, He's waiting until more unreached people groups have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, does that mean our obedience towards God's plan? If we don't do missions, God's not going to send Jesus on time. No, I think God is sovereign when He's going to send Jesus back. Um, I just think that in the context of this passage of Scripture in Revelation, it's interesting that the martyrs are told, wait. Now, what are they given? They're given a white robe. The white robe in the book of Revelation is both a symbol of victory through faithful purity. They have been faithful to the end. They are experiencing their Sabbath rest in heaven. Now, notice that he says, I saw the souls. It's an interesting term, isn't it? They're only souls in heaven, and they haven't received their glorified bodies yet. That won't happen until the resurrection of the, day, uh, the dead on the final day. Now, I'm going to stop and answer a question that everybody asks because it was asked to me in the new members class this past week. Every time I've taught a CCU class, the question's been asked. What happens to someone when they die? You're wanting to ask that, right? Okay. Christian and non-Christian. So you, got, you want me to answer that, or do you guys know the answer? 
What does he see? What does John... I'm talking about right now. Uh, let's start with the save prayer. Right now, like if you, if you, if your grandmother were to die tonight, where would she go? Well, it depends on whether she's saved or she's lost. What does John see? The souls. Okay, so when a Christian dies, their soul goes immediately to be in heaven with Jesus. Their soul. Where is their body staying? Either they were buried, they were cremated, they died at sea, they were drawn and quartered, they got blown up in an explosion, but whatever, their, their body is still on earth. In heaven right now, are there people with bodies? No, just souls. Okay? At the resurrection of the dead, the dead will rise and you will get a new body a new glorified body in, in a miraculous way, it's going to reunite with your soul. And so you will have a new resurrected body that you will live in for eternity. Has that happened yet? Okay. We who are still alive will go second. Okay, those the dead in Christ will go first. We who are still alive will be caught up and we'll get our new bodies as well. But right now in heaven, nobody has their new body yet. Because there hasn't been a final resurrection of the dead. Now, here's the question I've always had. Does a bodiless soul in heaven know they're bodiless? <laughs> or, or is it like they've been waiting, like a person that died a thousand years ago, are they waiting around for a thousand years in heaven? I sure wish my body comes soon. Okay, a couple of things. In heaven, you're perfect. Your soul is perfect. So you're not worrying about where your body is. And number two, we don't know how long the duration is in heaven. It could be the moment you die in heaven, like the moment you, like say you died a thousand years ago and Jesus comes back in a thousand years. So like, let's say that's a 2000 year period in heaven. The moment you die and the moment Jesus comes back and gets your new body, it could be just like a twinkling of an eye in heaven. It may not be durative. I don't know. The Bible doesn't share that. All we know is that the soul of a saved person goes immediately to be in heaven. That's why John says in heaven, he saw the souls of those who were under the altar. Now a lost person, same thing, except for a different place. We'll just go down here. Their soul goes to, whether you want to call it Hades, whether you want to call it um, Hell 1.0, whether you want to call it um, the Great Chasm, their soul goes to be in a place of darkness and separation from God. Same thing until the resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. So the, the dead that are unrighteous or lost, they're going to be resurrected and they're going to get a new body too. They're going to have a resurrected body. In that resurrected body, they're going to face the judgment and be judged by what they did in the body. So in their new glorified, not necessarily glorified, but in their new body, then they're going to be cast into what Revelation calls the lake of fire which is probably hell 2.0. I don't know if it's hotter, or I don't want to joke about it, but they are going to spend eternal conscious torment in hell with a body. People in heaven will spend eternal conscious bliss in a body in the new heavens and the new earth. So right now, in heaven are just souls. Right now, in hell or Haiti are just souls until the resurrection. And then the bodies of those that are lost will face the judgment and be cast into hell, suffering in their body because they're judged for the deeds they did in the body. Well, that's the question. I think they're conscious because um, there's, a, there's a view out there called soul sleep that like Jehovah's Witnesses and others believe that when you die, you just kind of rest and like you don't, you're not conscious of what's going on until... No, I don't think that. I think the historical orthodox view of hell is eternal conscious torment. Does that, does that make right, sense? Yeah. Okay. Right, of hell. Yeah. Or of what, whatever, but of, of now, you think that they're conscious? I, I think they're conscious now, and the only reason I think they're conscious is because of the parable of Abraham's bosom, right. where the rich man and Lazarus... Right. Because the, the rich man was aware that he was in torment. 
he knew what was going on enough to complain about it. He wasn't like he just was not conscious of it. He knew exactly, and he said, send, send somebody to get me out of here, and there's a chasm that's been fixed. You can't go from here to there. Once, once, you're, once you die, it's it. There's no second chance after that. So I think that, now that, that's, is that a parable to explain a theological truth? Did it really happen? I don't think it matters. I think the issue is the theological truth that's teaching that once you die without Christ, you're conscious, you're separated, there's a great chasm, there's no second chance after death. And then Revelation says that there is going to be a great white throne judgment where you will be judged in your body, and then those who were judged, whose names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So there's a, sec- so there's a second death. Well, the new, they have to have a new body because they have, to, they have to face judgment in the body because of the deeds they've done in the body. Because the Bible talks about a judgment of deeds you did in the body for the lost. Yeah. Now, in the saved in heaven up there on the mm-hmm. west side, yeah. you would say that's where Abraham and David are also? Yeah, okay. yeah. Now there's different views on like like there's different views on did the Old Testament saints go to a holding tank and then when Jesus died he brought them up. Um, that was John Calvin's view. It was Augustine's view. Um, did they go down to you know Sheol or Hades and then Jesus went down and got them and brought them back up? I don't know if there's any evidence. I I think my personal belief is that when David when the Old Testament saints died their souls went immediately to be with the Lord. I don't know why it would be any different. Just because, I mean, I know Jesus hadn't died yet, um, and he hadn't rose yet, but there's some things we don't know all the answers to. I saw a hand over here somewhere. Was there somebody? No, I was just wondering if you helped, like, Enoch and one of the other ones. Yeah, Enoch and Elijah were taken. Yeah. So are they in their bodies? Um, that's a great question. Is Enoch, the, is Enoch and Elijah the only guys up in heaven with bodies? Um, could be. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't get a glorified. Now, I don't know if that's like a temp, like they get a temporary catching up. The Bible doesn't really answer like, the Bible doesn't say, in heaven now, Enoch has a body. I mean, it just says, Enoch was no more. He walked with the Lord and he was no more. Elijah was, take, yeah, they, that was taken up in a whirlwind. Um, yeah, the Bible doesn't answer that question. So I'm not Enoch or I'm not Elijah, so I'm not worrying about it. But I know what's going to happen to me. So that's one of those secret things that... Paul, did you have a question? Or? Okay. All right. So John sees the souls of those who are in heaven. And so the church on earth has what we would call a mixed experience. Now, what do we mean by a mixed experience? You, let, me, let me explain it. In a sense... All of you have been clothed with a symbolic white robe because your sins have been forgiven and you are accepted before God and you have a home in heaven and you have the confidence to know that you're going to be a victor. But does that mean that you don't experience trials and tribulations and persecution and that the Satan doesn't prowl like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour right now? So on earth... We can have the victory of knowing that our sins are forgiven, but we're also in a fallen world and Christ hasn't come back yet and we don't have our new bodies. And so I I think the souls of those up there that that are awaiting vindication shows us that, number one, there are going to be martyrs. And it's God's ordained timetable for those martyrs to be martyrs. Um which is, it's either in comforting or it's kind of scary. If God ordains you to be a martyr, you will be a martyr. Now, it doesn't talk about a number here. It doesn't talk about a location. It doesn't talk about a country. My personal belief is that not many in comparison of all Christians are going to be called to be martyrs. But there will be some. There are some right now that are being called to be martyrs. All right, so let's look at the sixth seal, which is the great earthquake. So um, sixth seal, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, 
I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sat clock. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the skies fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. Okay, that sounds like final judgment, doesn't it? It is final judgment. This is the final judgment. Now, the question is, okay, why doesn't Revelation just stop right here? I mean, it sounds, that sounds like the end, doesn't it? Okay, the moon becomes like blood. There's a great earthquake. The sky is being rolled up like a scroll. Everybody's freaking out, trying to hide themselves, and everybody's saying, it's the day of wrath. It is the end. Okay, why doesn't, Revelation just end with chapter 6 or just go straight to heaven? Why do we have chapter 7 through 20? Okay. Well, part of it is your, your statement you started is saying this is not to sequence. Ex exactly. It jumps around. Exactly, Paul. And that's the, that's the next point. This is the first scene of final judgment, but it will be repeated with more intensity later on. We must remember that Revelation is not necessarily linear, but cyclical. That, that's, that's, that's the thing. So we're going to see a repetition of the same event two more times. Okay, so from different camera angles. So, so look at the imagery here. What do you got here? You got a great earthquake. Okay, you got the sun becomes black. You got a full moon like blood, the stars falling down, and people running around like crazy. Okay, go to Revelation eleven thirteen. Revelation 11, 13, and, the, and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. Okay, is this another earthquake? Is this another, is this another end? Or is this just telling it in a different way? Okay, go to chapter 16, verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man on the earth, so great was the earthquake, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great, on and on and on. So the question is, okay, are there three earthquakes in Revelation? Are there three final judgments in Revelation? Or is it the same event told in different ways with a different perspective, with a different camera angle because it is cyclical, not linear? What's the significance of an earthquake, by the way? You have to kind of go back to your Old Testament. When God was to go out and fight on behalf of the Israelites, sometimes God coming as a warrior to lead the host of his enemies, the world would shake like an earthquake. What happened when the nation of Israel came to Mount Sinai? There was an earthquake. The, the, the idea of an earthquake... It is a cataclysmic event that signals a lot of other cataclysmic events. What causes tsunamis? What? Earthquakes like plate tectonics under the ground. So a massive earthquake is God's final way of bringing ultimate judgment on the earth. Now go back to chapter 6. Look at the question. This, gets, this is where Revelation gets a little scary. Because what are people doing? They're hiding. What did Adam and Eve do when they first sinned? They hid because they were guilty. What do guilty people do when judgment comes? They want to hide. Now, what did they want to happen to them? Look at what they wanted to happen to them. They would rather have mountains and rocks fall on them and kill them and crush them than to face Jesus. What was, greater, what was a greater threat to these people that were lost or are going to be lost? Or 
I would rather get crushed by an earthquake boulder than to face the wrath of the Lamb. Look at that verse 16. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who's seated on the throne. Who's that? Who's Him who's seated on the throne? Well, uh, no, that's God the Father. Back to chapter 4. And from the wrath of the Lamb. That's Jesus. So you've got the Father's wrath. You've got Jesus' wrath. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Don't you find it eerily kind of scary that the way chapter 6 ends is with a question? Who can stand? Who can stand on the great day of God's wrath? Now, let's ask that question. Who can stand on the great day of the wrath of God? Believers can stand because we have Jesus as our Savior. Who cannot stand on the great day of God's wrath? The lost. I thought Jesus was this nice guy that walked around with a lamb in his hand, healing people and giving really cool sayings and would never execute judgment on lost people where people would be afraid of His wrath. The book of Revelation will not allow you to domesticate Jesus. He executes judgment. 